FYI, and I don't mean fake news, this podcast contains huge spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 366 of the podcast that goes snicked. I'm your host, Jason, hyperactive weenie venable, and I'm joined once again by special flashback co-guest host, John. Check out that spider butt, Wilson. Hey, John. A.K.A. John, do they really make Felix Boxer shorts? Wilson. <laughs> yes. That's a good a good alternative. <laughs> yep. But I'm looking at the spider butt right now, on, right on the cover of issue eight. Yeah. And there's definitely double spider cheek in effect right here. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, speaking of the, the, the boxer, the Felix Cap boxer scene, I kind of am just assuming, and, and headcanning at least, that uh, that actually happened to Todd McFarlane at some point. And he, you know, he answered the door and someone said, Felix the boxer short or Felix the cat boxer shorts um you know just based on his kind of obsession um but yeah no we're going to talk about uh it is a flashback episode for a webhead and windigo um and we're going to talk about the 91 adjectiveless spider-man story perceptions which runs from spider-man 8 to 12 yeah, so this is one, this dates back to like the beginnings of my Spider-Man collecting. Uh, I know you and I started collecting comics basically within two weeks of each other. <laughs> um, and I, I, I'm surprised I didn't run into you at the shop. I might have right. done. Um, but I, I want to say that I came into this title right at the end of Torment and was able to get the back issues of Torment. And like, I'm sure issue one was in its like 17th reprinting or whatever. Um, and I remember getting the Hobgoblin two-parter and having to wait between six and seven. And then yeah. this was a very like memorable installation or installment of that reading experience because McFarlane artwork, and this is my first Wolverine story. Oh, wow. And Spider-Man's doing lots of cool stuff in it. Also, it's a big issues story. So, you know, to what would have been 11-year-old me or 12-year-old me, this was, you know, kind of thought-provoking and informative. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was, you know, for whatever you think about the flack that McFarlane took in his early writing, um, and I'll talk more about this maybe at the end, but um, there is a lot to kind of chew on in these issues, for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, similar to you, 13-year-old me was very much like, okay, what what do we think about this? Where do we land on kind of the different views thrown out in this, this issue or these issues? Um, Cause it kind of, I mean, there's kind of lots of people like pitted against each other. Um, you know, some through the machinations of the plot, some kind of more organically in this story, but you know, there's kind of a lot of, just a lot of thought provoking things that happen in here. And um, I do want to say, um, couple of housekeeping items so first of all on really really good news um for those of you who have just recently started listening to the show you may not have heard unless you've gone back but if you've been listening to the show for a while or or a new listener and gone listen to old episodes um you'd be very familiar with uh 
uh, co-host that used to come on the flashback a lot, Cameron Sinclair. Um, the the podcast goes Nick would like to officially congratulate him on completing his doctorate. Um, Yay! So, awesome, Cameron. So Doctor Sinclair is is in the house, and um, so definitely want to send out a very heartfelt congratulations to him. Um, yes, a pretty big deal to to accomplish that. So so definitely want to do that. I also, in light of these issues and and John, I hope this is okay. Um, I'm going to try to do some more of this going forward, especially in 90s stuff, because of the way that 90s can handle things. Um, I don't know for sure. I'm not really going to give us any parameters. So I don't know how much we'll get into this topic, but there is the potential to get into a pretty uh, disturbing topic, at least surface level. And... For anyone that that might have a negative impact or, or trigger any bad feelings or memories at, at any point in this episode, if you're like, oh, I'm not sure about this, just, you know, bow out, catch us back up to us next episode, and that's totally fine. So I just want to kind so of throw that just, out there. Should we maybe just say content warning uh, child sexual abuse? Yes. Yeah. I think that's that's definitely safe to say. Like I said, I don't know. How much we'll really get into that, but I don't want to limit us either. So we'll just kind of see where the conversation goes. And it's probably going to be towards the end of the storyline. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But but do you just want to throw that out there in case that's you know something that you know you you you've been through or, or know people or just don't really want to listen to that we totally understand and you know that's definitely a we want you to make the best decision for yourself as we start talking about things. So. Just kind of have that in mind, but um, otherwise, I'm really looking forward to kind of digging into this story. Um, I think a, a very formative story, for, it sounds like, for both of us, so it be very, very interesting to get into. So you want to go ahead and just jump into the issues? I've got Spider-Man climbing down a tree right in front of me. <laughs> yeah, the Spider-Man number eight is uh, Perceptions Part 1 of 5, and it is... Uh, Art and written by Todd McFarlane, letters by Rick Parker, colors by Gregory White. I'm sorry, Gregory Wright, and uh, the cover is by McFarlane. And you know, it's a cover that if you, if you start thinking about too hard, I'm not sure it works in every aspect. But I really, really like it, <laughs> and so so I just choose not to overanalyze it. But um. It is Spider-Man kind of climbing through the treetops. Um, his uh, spider bubble butt from McParlane is in full effect, um, as, as we mentioned earlier. And I don't know, it's just, it's a really cool cover. I'm not sure where, like, his feet and hands actually always connect to anything, but I don't know. I, I just, I really like it, and so I just kind of go with it. What do you think about the cover, John? Um... Yeah, his right hand. You mean his I other left it, hand? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he definitely has two left hands on this cover. <laughs> Unless it's supposed to be just Either a really big jointed for sure. A really yeah. big spread between his thumb and forefinger, but it looks like yeah, I don't know. What really catches my eye is the fact that his left leg is going <laughs> over a branch, which is kind of weird. But if you don't notice the details if you just pick up this comic and look at the cover the colors pop um spider-man's bright red up against the dark uh greens and browns of the nighttime 
uh, forest scene. It's a really eye-catching cover. It's just the more you look at it, the more you're like, huh, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> right. But, um, I like it because the blue portions of the costume are mostly black. I think it's okay. blue highlighted enough that your brain fills it in as blue in the dark. But I've always been a fan of the red and black look for Spider-Man yeah. that Ditko first did back in the day. And that Eric Larson brought back for a while. So I like to pretend he's red, he's red and black whenever possible. Sounds good. In fact, that would be concurrent to these issues was Larson was, was definitely rocking the red and black over and amazing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, um, in this issue, we have reporter Anna Brooks sent to Canada to cover a story about the protest of deforestation when she accidentally runs over a monster with white fur who runs off leaving behind the mutilated body of a missing local boy. Um, all hell breaks loose with media circus and a hunt for Bigfoot to stop him from stealing other children. And of course, uh, J. Jonah Jameson sends uh, Peter Parker to take pictures of the Bigfoot story for the bugle. A second boy is also found his body, um, mutilated and appeared to be mauled and maybe eaten. Um, the town starts shooting every wild animal in sight, which pisses off Wolverine. Yep. It's, it's an extremely, okay. So one of the things that McFarlane's Spider-Man series gets flack for is the writing, especially torment torment, right. you know, had the doom, doom, doom. It had the rise above it all. Um, Personally, I think there's a lot of good stuff to be had in that storyline. But you get to this story, and it's almost like an illustrated novella. It mm-hmm. is extremely narrated, extremely wordy, but it also flows really well. And the, the narration really helps to add to the visual imagery and vice versa. You're, you're reading one thing and seeing another thing. And a lot of times they'll they'll complement each other because they're showing different sides of the same truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I really like about this first issue is the revelation of the mystery that comes later. All, all the double entendres he does in this both work to mislead you as a reader, but mm-hmm. also work with the revelation. And right. it's kind of masterful. Yeah, no, I, yeah, you know, I agree with you. There is, I think, kind of a. I, don't know, I, I think it kind of bleeds across his whole career that people are just kind of like, oh, great artist, so-so writer. But I think he, I think he comes out of the gate really strong in this issue. Um, mm-hmm. Probably more so than the previous seven. I mean, I do also like Torment. I think there are good things. The writing doesn't bother me. Um, if anything, I felt like the. The Hobgoblin story may may have been a little flimsier, but this one, I think, comes out really strong. Um, and it is the narration. It's the different voices. And I will say this. For a guy who's supposedly not a great writer, his voices all sound different, which I was really impressed with. And they sound unique and like different characters talking in right. the narration. And I that's – I mean, not everyone does that real well. So I was really impressed with that piece. Um you know, artistically, I really like, like on the second page, uh, the flies in the white space, and even one of the flies like landing on a panel, I thought was really neat. Um, you know, right out of the bat, you're kind of like, oh, I'm not sure about this story because you have the 
the splash page of all right. So do you say Wendigo or Wendigo? I say Wendigo. Okay. Yeah. So with the uh, you know the corpse and he digs out of the ground, which which you know going as the story progresses, we don't know. Did he bury it and then dig it up? Did he find it and dig it up? Like there's a whole lot of mystery that really plays into this story and it's it's paced really well. And this first issue does a lot to really make the reader a little bit off balance. And I think that's very effective. Uh, and also props to him for handling. There's a lot of child nudity in this story of corpses mm-hmm. and it never once feels exploitative. It never right. once feels like we're, we're perving on stuff. One looking at corpses and having a sexual reaction is, you know, something you want to keep to yourself in the first place. But as, as an artist, he also, one of the things that helps is that he does this thing where he completely ignores any concept of um, sexual body parts on these corpses. Right. He just ignores it. It's just, you know, the, the, the body just, you know, has a, has a smooth uh, surface there. Which is which helps because you know Wendy goes pulling this child's body out of the ground and it's in full vision of the camera, um, but it's darkened. All the flesh tones are removed. There's nothing, you know. I just I don't know. Lots of artistic choices that could have gone another direction easily, especially, oh, yeah. especially in this era, <laughs> right? Especially in the '90s. You know, I think one of the things that, that McFarlane does is play to a sense of style that he had already established. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, he doesn't just ignore, like you said, kind of the sexual parts of what, what could have been, you know, embellished or detailed. But, you know, in general, McFarlane kind of ignores or makes his own rules with lighting and perspective and shadowing. And it kind of always has to a very cool visual effect. So I think he kind of takes advantage of the fact that he's already played with like doing maybe some unrealistic shadowing for drama, for dramatic purposes, and, and uses that to kind of conceal some of the stuff that, that maybe other artists would have had a harder time making as vague, but still making it effective. Um, right. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess let's just clear the air. I mean, I'm a I'm a big McFarlane fan, so I'm not going to really dig into some of the things that people don't like about him because I just really really like him. Um, you know, so there's that. <laughs> but, I think, in, in a way, you you know, you can definitely pull out places where McFarlane has some gaps as artwork. We did some on the cover, but for the most part, I feel like he really brought his A game to this story. Yeah, um, Spider Man looks very spidery. Uh, he, you know, he did a lot of writing to make Peter Parker feel like a person, even though Peter Parker and Spider-Man are kind of going through the plots almost happening around Spider-Man in this story. Uh huh. It, it, as we go along, it pretty much becomes a Wolverine story. It really Spider-Man does. Yeah. In it. <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, but at the same time, whenever we hear Spider-Man's voice, he's a person. He's concerned about his wife. He's thinking about, you know, various things that are personal and relatable. Um, you know, with the first time we see him, he's got this mugger tr- trust up in webs and he's having a sort of trying to be a threatening conversation. The mugger's just refusing to be threatened. 
he's just trying to you know pull out all these excuses or it kind of reminds me of you know dealing with eighth graders um <laughs> but then you know right at the end of that scene his webbing dissolves and the micro falls in the trash he's like perfect almost to one hour to the second filth has just met filth it's pretty awesome belly flop yeah it's pretty great and then you get the classic mcfarlane spider action with all the webs and the mm-hmm. aerial contortion gymnastics and this kind of the sideways like tilted panel of the skyline is it's just it's fantastic stuff and I used to wonder why he would go through the process of contorting his body so much. But then once they actually started showing Spider-Man swinging in live action film, I realized that your body does go through a lot of flips and flops and, <laughs> right. you know, weird contortions as you're going to sort of, you know, make it interesting as you're flying through the air. <laughs> I love whenever he, uh, he's all worried about and Mary Jane being upset because of how late he was. He almost cooks up a cockamamie story to like, you know, defend himself but she's sleeping and i mean how many of us have had a situation where we knew our significant other was going to give us a little bit of crap if they caught us doing something (laughs) not that we're doing anything to like upset them they just wouldn't really appreciate it and just the fact that we missed getting noticed you know it's just like yes (laughs) off the hook she's asleep yeah and then the next morning Peter, when did you get home? Oh, just a minute or two after you went to bed. Like, how did he know when she went to bed? Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's such a great line. Um, yeah. I mean, there's comedic timing and there's drama. I really, um, the the play between the colors and the shadows. So like on that same page, like the top, it's like a double page spread in a way um, where the top half is like, goes across the page of Spider-Man swinging through swinging home and very very colorful but then you get like the really dark shadow of him coming into the skylight and just mm-hmm. I don't know, just looks really cool it's a really nice contrast um it probably does something here too you know one of the things that he's known for in spawn is playing with the uh the tv stuff and uh we had seen a, a sample of that and and a couple of issues before this here he really plays with like headlines and newspaper stuff uh pretty right. much the whole story and i think it's really effective um so I, it, I like... it just kind of helps to to set the stage and the feeling and the tone of how things are changing and shifting in the background right yeah because this, this story uh... is very much about the the opinions and 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 sentiments of the populace surrounding the events and right. we get that through people's conversations but we also get it through these these headlines they're just kind of scattered through the story yeah and a lot of kind of commentary and without really necessarily espousing any certain thesis but there's a lot of commentary on kind of what the responsibility of the press and the media is which i felt mm-hmm. was very timely to us now <laughs> so it still right. kind of made sense to me um <laughs> so i mean i don't know i think Kind of some, I guess the, the more things change, the more they stay the same, or we're just in another really bad cycle. But, um, I yeah. love that Spider Man works for the Daily Bug. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I caught that. Yeah, yeah, so the Daily Beagle uh, is cut off by the panel to the Daily Bug. That's awesome. And, and uh, he mentions that Mary Jane's gonna tape Twin Peaks for him while he's gone. Like, yay, yeah. Spider-Man watches Twin Peaks. Of course, yeah. Peter watches Twin Peaks. <laughs> and the Simpsons, yeah. 
Um, Back when everybody watched The Simpsons. Right. Yep. But um, speaking of the double entendres, so she, um, we go back to the reporter and she's writing about how, um, you know, she's starting to worry about the hysteria that she's caused. And we see as she's narrating um, that another boy has been found dead or another boy is dead and his body was abused, but another boy is still missing. And we see Wendigo eating. We see Wendigo eating Mm -hmm. flesh. And the flesh happens to be colored human Caucasian skin tones um, instead of, you know, maybe the more expected, you know, red of a muscle or whatever. So it's implied that Wendigo is eating this boy. And then we turn the page and they find the boy and he's partially mutilated. The fact that he's wearing his clothes, it becomes a plot point later. But you don't necessarily notice it on your first read through, or you right. wonder if maybe there was a mistake in the storytelling. Yeah, or or you know, one of the things that we realized through the hysteria of the story is that there's probably not just the two boys. So I mean, it could be a completely different boy. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it, there is definitely a lot of baiting and switching in this story for sure, because um, you are left wondering. Okay, well. What is the Wendigo eating? Is he eating one of the boys? And you know, I think you know. We've established by this, yeah, yeah, because even back to the like way back in the early appearances of Wendigo, it's established that there's some cannibalistic uh, nature to the curse. So I think you're you're assuming that he's eating a person, um, and so yeah, it definitely definitely plays into kind of your expectations. Um, and those dogs just look mean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, but let's see. Peter's talking to Mary Jane about how long it's taking for him to uh, discover this. Um, it's day nine by the end of this issue. I don't know what day of the storyline they arrived on. Um, I think we're going to be here for two or three more days because it goes to day 11 or 12 right. of the incidents. Um, but then Wolverine makes his appearance at the end, and it's really great. Um, this is my first, like I said earlier, my first Wolverine comic story to read. And I don't think I ever, the thing that stood out to me whenever I flipped to this last page. Okay, so I really liked this pose as a kid. But coming back and looking at it, I'm seeing one that is a really wide belt. I mean, that's a <laughs> really wide belt. Yeah. Also, his entire torso is above the belt. Like, pecs and ribcage and abdomen are all above the belt. And then he has the like, hips and pelvis below the belt. So it kind of feels like the effect you usually get with women in writing, that like in, in artists that... Like, everything's been squeezed above and below. Nothing exists actually on the waistline. Right. Um, but other than the, you know, the few details in the anatomy, it's a really great Wolverine pose. Um, the, the coloring looks fantastic. Uh, him standing there is orange and uh, browns against the uh, blues and greens in, in the moon, and everything is pretty great. Yeah, no, it's, it's a nice page. It definitely gets you like, okay, here's where we're going next. Um and even the page before that where he, like, carves stop in the tree and you see him, like, just the yellow of his cow lit mm-hmm. up and then his claws in front with the eyes. It's a really 
it's a really cool effect to turn from that little panel on the bottom of the page. And then, are you reading uh, ish, the floppies, or are you reading digitally? I'm reading digitally. I okay, had cool. these, but I don't have them anymore. Right. Okay, cool. Because in the physical copy, like you have to turn through an ad to get from the little like, dark panel to the full-page splash at the end. And it's actually kind of effective to have to turn the page to get to it. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a nice kind of end of the story to see the characters and the cast kind of all brought into the story. Um, we pretty much have met almost everybody by this point. I think there's one more major player that we haven't met yet. But um, well, We didn't yeah. talk about Melvin, who is the... Uh somewhat obnoxious person that's going with Peter on this yeah. trip Does who is reading Felix the Cat comics. <laughs> yes. <laughs> in the plane. So Todd McFarlane likes to put Felix the Cat in his comics. Almost every issue Todd McFarlane has done of his, of his career has right. Felix the Cat somewhere in it. <laughs> yeah. So is, that, is this Melvin character an, an existing Daily Bugle reporter? No. I, I, I don't remember ever hearing of him. Okay. Right. Um, I'm going to do a little quick search while we're talking. But I'm pretty sure he's just in this story, and that's it. Okay, cool. Um, the only other thing I really had necessarily to say that I really thought was kind of poignant and, and identified with was when uh, Peter Parker is calling home to Mary Jane. He talks about when he saw the body, and then he cried like a baby, because I'm pretty sure that's exactly what I would have done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mm-hmm. just lost just lost my shit and started bawling. Um, having seen something that horrible, so it made it made Peter Parker really endearing to me. And I mean, in the history of Spider-Man, it's not hard to endear myself to Peter Parker, but I just really, really identified that really struck a chord with me. Just the idea that you know he's seen a lot, but there's still just things that just kind of break you and get the tears flowing. So I thought that was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice touch, especially nowadays where, you know, toxic masculinity is is really being strongly worked against. You have stuff like this, and it does kind of feel like he's confessing a vulnerability that he's not too proud of, which, you know, we want to get that more in the air as the decades go on, but I do, it it is a very good touch. And I did confirm Melvin Gooner only exists in these five issues. Oh, okay. Well, I guess he uh, he didn't get the story he needed, and JJJ fired him. <laughs> you know what? I believe it. Yeah. So we're ready for part two? Yeah, yeah, number nine. So this is uh, Spider-Man 9, guest starring Wolverine, Perceptions Part 2 of 5. Deep in the woods lurks Wendigo. We have Spider-Man hanging upside down from some webs as Wolverine stands next to him, claws of one fist upraised. And then behind them in the background on a black backdrop is the green line work of Wendigo's face and his claws actually reaching forward and wrapping around the bottom of Wolverine's legs. Uh, It's a pretty cool 3D effect going on there. Um, And I really like this cover. Yes, I like it a lot. Um, You know, it's funny. We're we're playing with like Super Wolverine Cal on this cover. Mm -hmm. Um, And the point that it even kind of starts to fold back over, which is a a thing you kind of get in early 90s. Um, You know, it kind of reminds me of like uh, the kind of stuff Sam Keith will end up doing. But um, it's a nice touch here. You know, the only thing I would say this cover is perfect, but the claws seem a little wimpy. (laughs) 
Other than that, though, I think this clause or this cover is really, really nice. I like it a lot. I love Spider-Man's pose. He's hanging upside down next to Wolverine. Now, even down to like the drool from Wendigo's mouth, um, you know, and the fangs, and it just is. You almost know, kind of like uh, it's almost like a Chinese dragon look to him. I think mm-hmm. part of that's the color mm-hmm. work, but it just it looks it looks really, really cool. I like it a lot. The claw length is correct for his forearms. I think the problem is that Wolverine's legs are too long, and that yeah. all of his all of his waist up proportions are for a smaller human. Right, <laughs> and so he's right. too tall. Also, next to his cowl, which goes up and touches the seventh heaven, um, if it seems small. But this is uh, Todd McFarlane is on pencils and inks and story. Rick Parker. The uh, late Rick Parker is on letters. Gregory Wright is on colors. Jim Salakrup is the editor. And Tom DeFalco is the editor in chief. Um, we open in a uh, forest. There are several gunshots going off and then a snicked. And then Wolverine shoves a hunter's face into the ground. Um, he grabs a man's rifle and threatens to kill him. The man begs for his life. He's like, okay, but the, the animals you're killing, they don't get to beg. So you need to spread the word to your friends that killing is wrong. Make sure they get your point. And he sends the man on his way. Um, just to make sure that he remembers his promise, Wolverine carves you promised into the man's car before he gets there. Change scene to blood. I mean, ketchup being poured over a donut. <laughs> and Peter Parker's aghast nauseated expression as he's trying to talk to Melvin Gooner, who is putting ketchup on a cake donut. And he's like, Mel, don't put that in your mouth. I haven't had much sleep and my stomach's empty, so unless the aroma of barf sounds appealing, I'd abstain. Jeez, (laughs) Peter, what a lightweight. So they're talking about um, how the police have been releasing uh, limited information to the press but it's not the kind of information that would calm people. It actually is the kind of information that would, that would increase the paranoia and the um, the unrest in the citizenry. Um, then a riot starts to break out outside. A bottle actually crashes through the window where they're sitting. Uh, Peter's talking to a, a bystander, an observer, who... Um, let's see... They just kind of talk a little bit, and he's the first one to mention the name Wendigo to Peter Parker, which is actually the first time we've heard the name Wendigo in the story. So uh, Peter puts on his Spidey duds that night. He ditches Melvin, decides to go and see if he can figure out what's going on because he needs answers. We can get home to see his wife. He goes to the police department. After two hours of waiting, they finally show up, and the police captain is talking to... Uh, Anna, I forget her last name, the woman who broke the story, initially broke the story, and she's trying to also understand why the police is leaking information about body counts and all this other stuff um, whenever that was not helpful. Anyways, so Spider-Man decides that talking to Anna as Spider-Man will not be helpful, so he goes and talks to her as Peter photographer and therefore fellow reporter while they're talking the police captain makes a phone call to someone named luke thorpe who can help them find the animal in the woods that did the killing um peter and anna really hit it off they're talking in a um diner 
about everything. He kind of opens up to her about, you know, some of the pain he's gone through. It's nothing in, uh, like, you know, suspicious or stuff that Mary Jane wouldn't appreciate. But, you know, they're just talking. And towards the end of the story, we hear what we see Wolverine checking out the sites of the killings and uh, smelling the spores and trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Uh, Luke Thorpe leads a hunting party into the woods. They find Wendigo's sleeping body. And as Spider-Man is swinging through town and Wolverine's running through the jungle, a rifle is shot and Wendigo is hit in the belly and wakes up in a rage as Wolverine runs toward him. Yeah, nice chapter. Um, I really, uh, I really like Wolverine as kind of conservationist in this story. Um, you know, brings up a good point that the animals can't voice their displeasure with being hunted. Um, you know, I'm not a hunter, so <laughs> it kind of makes sense to me, right? Um, the idea that you know there's no no way to defend themselves against our firearms. Um, yeah, and, and funny because Wolverine, even though we know, because you know, there was that scene early in X Men where Wolverine is quote unquote hunting a deer and someone kind of calls him out and he's like, No, it's just touching it. Like, <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of catching it was not to kill it, it was to touch it. And, um, it's like the concept, what do they call it, counting coup? Where yeah, it's like you know, you just tag the enemy, you don't actually attack them, right? Right, right, yeah, and so, um. Anyway, I just appreciated that kind of him kind of taking that stand because it's, he doesn't even necessarily like draw the line at whether it's yeah you know, it's hard to tell whether he's mad at you know the idea that animals can't defend themselves in general or if he's just mad because people have gone nuts and are shooting everything in sight. Um, but either way, uh, it's it kind of plays into Wolverine's character and gives him a kind of a distinct purpose and mission in this story. And then also gives him kind of reason, um, as as we'll see, to kind of sympathize of when to go through this story, which, you know, was his kind of first published enemy. So, I mean, it's kind of an interesting kind of take and turn and on that relationship. I don't think they've faced each other again since that time, have they? Uh, Wendigo popped in briefly in an uncanny... 139 and 140, I think, if I remember oh, right. Okay. Where um, showed up? Yes, I think so. I think he was in those issues. I think you're right. Um, uh, but no, yeah, it's this, been a while. It's been it's been a, a good while. <laughs> this storyline did a lot to flavor my perception of Wolverine. And so when when I later read that scene you were talking about with Storm and Wolverine. Or even when, uh, more recently, whenever I saw The Wolverine, the film, and it opens up with the hunting stuff and the hunters with the poison-tipped you know, arrows and everything, um, all of that stuff was, is, is viewed in my mind through the filter of this Wolverine. <laughs> nice. This you know, nature-conservative, animal-conscious, uh, you know, we humans are the intruders in the wild we don't belong there certainly not the way we usually treat it right so you know i i really dig that for wolverine as a as a a personality trait and i didn't realize that thing until just reading it this time through that i mean for the 30 years i've been reading wolverine this issue 
has helped to inform that aspect of him. Very good. Um, I really like the art of him confronting the hunter, especially the big page with him kind of crouching with his claw through the leaves as he swam and the guy's face into the dirt. Mm -hmm. Um, The way he shadows and shades that is really cool. Um, Get lots of kind of uh, Wolverine slash Batman poses where you see like eyes and teeth and shadow. Um, McFarlane gives him a very bird-like nose uh, through this story, um, which I noticed several times. uh, But you really notice it on the page right before you get the revelation that that Wolverine keys a car. um, (laughs) We get a profile shot. It's just very um, bird of prey looking. Um, Are you suggesting he could have done that with the corner of his nose? (laughs) Possibly. Well, he does the thing where the uh, the mask follows every contour of expression on the Wolverine's face. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have to kind of choose what you're going to do when it gets to the nose. And basically it's like, okay, it, it's his nose. Yeah. And then just kind of like comes to a point at the end. It looks good. It looks good. Um, the, uh, the housings Hi. on the back of his hands are always in full effect. No, the, yeah, McFarlane definitely makes those pretty pretty visible, pretty big. Like they take up a lot of his hand. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of reminds me of the uh, almost almost a Cockermesque version of the housings where they were very prominent. Um, so I Googled ketchup and donuts because I was like, okay, is this like a, is this a geographic thing? Are there certain segments of the country that do this? The only thing I could find in all of Google was the revelation that ketchup has almost as much sugar as donuts. Um, other than that, I could not find anything that pointed to this being a, a real custom anywhere. So I guess Melvin's just weird. Melvin's a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. And just something that Farlane thought of to be funny. Um, but it is. I mean, it definitely plays, you know, because I remembered it. So, I mean, it's definitely a memorable kind of gag. Um that makes Peter want to gag. Um, but yeah, it just, I couldn't, couldn't find anything about it. I like, uh, I really like the cartoony caricaturing of kind of the kind of random like characters that come in and out. Like the old man that Peter's speaking to kind of has a very much like Canadian bitter beer face going on. Um, yeah, it's a hyper realism. Mm-hmm. Like it takes, it feels more realistic than a lot of comic art of old people's faces does. But also, like you said, it goes beyond that to caricature level because the, the, um, the features are exaggerated beyond anything resembling reality, but it, 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 in the way he does it, it just, it feels like a real face. Yeah. You know what it reminds me of? What's that? Golden age, Jack Kirby. Yeah. I can see that. Have you read a lot of like his old Captain America comics and stuff? A little bit. Um, I did. So when I started my 60s read through, when I got ready for Captain America to come back, I was like, you know what? I need to go back. And so <laughs> so there's there's a handful of stuff that at that time was on Marvel Unlimited. I think they've increased the the volume of it since then. But yeah, I read read a, probably a dozen or so of those issues. Um 
I do not have a lot of exposure to his other Golden Age stuff mm-hmm. uh, outside of that. But um, well, I'll maintain that the Jack Kirby of the '40s and the Jack Kirby of the '60s are two very oh, different artists. Yes, very much. Yeah, and, and in, in in the '40s, he drew very expressive faces. With, I mean, and and he really he did a really good job making ugly humans, right? <laughs> and this old guy kind of reminds me of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't I mean, mean ugly, of course, and insulting. I mean just ugly, like you know, non-symmetrical, non-traditionally attractive, right. yeah. not smooth-featured. Yeah, he's got he's wrinkly, normal he's ugly got humans. Big nose, a big underbite, uh, or yeah, uh, big ears. Um, Big white eyebrows. Uh, a lot of people smoke in this story, and he's mm-hmm. definitely he's got a little cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Um, yeah, and we get a nice uh, Spider-Man with superfluous webs swinging through the Canadian town. Um, he likes to do his full-page splashes, but he doesn't do them so much that they feel superfluous. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, and. You know, he definitely uses them to get some narration in there and continue moving the plot forward. Uh, we meet the police chief or the inspector. Um, I like, you know, Peter approaching the reporter as Peter because he's, he, he's worried that if people see him and Spider-Man in this town that's not New York, they're going to put two and two together. Um, <laughs> and so I also... <laughs> I really like um, the the page of Wendigo sweeping. Like it's just really like there's this monster, and he's just kind of like you can almost hear the wee 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 wee. Right. <laughs> well, I think this is one of the first times that we see when maybe the first time that we see Wendigo in a sympathetic light as right. just a sleeping creature. And the headline at the bottom says Savage Killer Still Loose. Right. And it's just like mm-hmm. if there is a Savage Killer, it's not this. Right. And the narration right. from the reporter is I've got an editor back in Vancouver. So it's my column. I could use the boost this story's given my career. My job is to write something that sells papers, even if I don't have all the facts. Mm-hmm. And beneath that, we have the juxtaposition of Sleeping Silly Wendigo with Savage Killer Still Loose. Yep. The misappropriation of headlines is something that that still rings very true. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I you know I think a common theme that we'll kind of see these issues is is some kind of um satirical criticism of things that are not very much different nowadays than they were back in ninety one. Um but just as far as badass stuff, the that first page of Wolverine, like running through the forest and smelling the dirt, mm-hmm. uh, that's an awesome page. <laughs> it yeah, looks really yeah. good. I like the not quite fang uh, yeah. tooth line that he gives to Wolverine. Um, him smelling the spores and with all the flies around, you know, just highlighting the fact that he's looking at scenes of death and everything. Um, just really highlighting. One of the one of the things about Wolverine that I've always kind of and it's not just to him, but just kind of is a little bit silly about people like this is the term my senses or I <laughs> sensed it, or just the word sense as, you know, this general word mm-hmm. is the only thing about it. Cause like he could say the scent. 
or right. I smell. But there are a couple places where he's like, my senses don't lie to me or something. It's like, okay, how about your nose? You're about your nose, right? <laughs> well, your nose. Always... You don't have your Star Trek sensors on full right now. Right. <laughs> and then Thorpe leads them to the Wendigo, and he's laying there sleeping. Um and so you wonder what Thorpe has to do with all of this. That you know, for most of the story, he's kind of a suspicious character. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely. I mean, he's the tracker. He knows the woods. He's, he, you know, for someone that they're like, "Hey, I need your help," and no one's been able to find this guy, and he finds him right away. I mean, you start thinking, "Well, is there is there a connection there? You know, was it too easy?" And then you know, you don't see who shoots him. And you don't find out later what really happened here, but um, or, I'm sorry, you don't find out until later. Um, but you know, the shot goes off. You see the blood, and then yeah, you, know, you see Wendigo really, really pissed off. That's a great page. Um, I like the fact that he uses the the headline from the paper to separate. It's almost like there's not really a panel divide. Right. But that separates the image of Wolverine running towards the scene and Wendigo about to just rip into some some poor humans. Um, and you could do just a black field between the two where the headline helps to delineate them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the Bigfoot everywhere. Could there be more than one just feeding that that propaganda sensationalism kind of shaping a story that's not true, but printing it like it is true um like i said a lot of a lot of contemporary um <laughs> illusions there and you end with spider-man thinking this is a dud evening and and when to go getting shot and wolverine going after him so like the story is moving forward even though spider-man is not on the right trail right yeah yeah he's off doing his own different thing kind of not really knowing where what's going on around him it's, it makes for an interesting kind of transition into the next issue Speaking of the next issue. Yeah, speaking of the next issue, we have... Wolverine, Wendigo, Webhead, oh my. <laughs> Spider-Man number 10. I freaking love this cover. Um, yes. Let me see if there's anything to... Let's see. Uh, so the only real difference here is we have Todd and Friends on the inks. So we definitely got some help. I didn't do any research. I'm suspicious that maybe Marta Shera is one of the friends helping. But um, anyway, um, but yeah, on the cover we have a very shadowy uh, trio, an unlikely trio of Wolverine in his yellow and blue costume, Spider-Man, and then Wendigo just hulking in the back. Um with very red eyes and very a very red mouth. Um, it's a creepy cover. It's a really nice cover. Um, it's a macabre. And then you have the, you know, the, the Wolverine Wendigo, like you said, the Wolverine Wendigo on the webhead. Oh my, at the bottom is just a really nice, because you have like their different fonts. And you know, obviously you have the Wolverine font from his solo title. Um, Wendigo just gets a nice, cool-looking new font, and then the webhead is is done the same font as the Spider-Man. Even it kind of has the same curvature as the uh, the Spider-Man at the top. So it's just a real everything about this cover just really 
hits on all cylinders. I feel like. I agree. The um, what you were saying earlier about how he plays with lighting and does you know lighting angles that maybe didn't actually work in reality but work for the art. Like Spider-Man's Wolverine's faces are both heavily darkened, and it works because it's it's the nighttime, right? Um, but Wendigo's face is very well lit for <laughs> right. no reason whatsoever, except yeah. that it looks really cool, right? Yeah, like we uh, know what Spider-Man Wolverine looked like. You might not know what the Wendigo is behind them, so putting his face in darkness just would be weird, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could headcan in the I don't know Wendigo's fur kind of. Has an effervescent <laughs> quality to it. I don't know. <laughs> the moon is shining right on his pearly whites. Right, right. <laughs> All right. So uh, Wolverine begrudgingly runs to help the hunters who just attacked the Wendigo. Uh, we find out that someone had an itchy trigger finger in the hunting party. It wasn't necessarily Thorpe. Um, but uh, anyway, he uh, he rescues the last hunter. But sympathizing with the Wendigo, he won't pop his claws as he fights Wendigo. He does, however, strip and scream, howl, bark, something, which uh, gives Wendigo pause. Uh, The primal display makes Wendigo run off as Wolverine lets the reader know that he knows what's going on. Though we don't get filled in yet. Uh, Going back into town, Logan can smell Peter Parker as Spider-Man and tells him to meet him outside of the town to help. Uh, worried about who might know his identity here in Canada, uh, Spidey swings into the preordained forest clearing to find old-school Wolverine. By the way, love that page. Um, he tells Spidey what his senses, there you are, <laughs> John, have confirmed a human has killed the boys, not Wendigo. Wendigo just found the body, and off they go. Yeah. Um, I really like that opening splash in the tree line in the background. Yep. It's actually nice. looking to see if those were Douglas firs, um, <laughs> which I only know of the name Douglas firs because of Twin Peaks. But it does oh. not look like it's not look like they're Douglas firs. Douglas firs are rounder than that. Those are tall and skinny. Um, but yeah. The, the 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 mystery is is starting to shift just a little bit and we're starting to realize that maybe things are not what we thought they were I do really really like Wolverine going full primal but honestly whenever he rips off his shirt I expected to turn the page and see just like you know buck ass naked Wolverine <laughs> right <laughs> He did manage to keep his his lower bits on. He just, you know, I guess ripping your shirt. You know, Jim Kurt can relate. Ripping your right. shirt just makes you feel more, I don't know, feral. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know if Wolverine and Spider-Man have seen each other since Spider-Man versus Wolverine. I guess there was the assassination plot. Uh, that was the same routine, but they did have that Marvel Comics present story that we did. Oh yeah, that one. Okay. Yeah, with the uh, with not Savage Dragon. Um, right. <laughs> but um, man, uh, all the art with the the fight were really 
Oh, shit. Really, like the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. The whole that opening first scene. seven pages is just some really, really A game art by McFarlane and friends. Um, it, it it, looks... it's, it's primal, it's feral, and Wolverine looks fantastic, and Wendigo looks great, and the people are being torn to pieces. Not torn to pieces, but tossed around. Right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, then we get our uh, our Felix the Cat boxer shorts. Then we get more uh, Wolverine and, and Wendigo fighting, um, and kind of interspersed with you know some of the hunters escaping back into town and and feeding the flames of the Bigfoot story. Um, Wolverine just looks nuts in that scene where he where he does strip down. Um, then you just kind of see Wendigo just kind of get nonplussed about it. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily look threatened by Wolverine's primal, primal display, but it does definitely make him kind of, like, stop. And I like, go, huh? <laughs> like, oh, well, okay, I guess you're an animal like me, but I'm still the alpha predator, so I not, don't really feel threatened, so I'm just going to leave. <laughs> yeah, I don't feel threatened, but I also no longer feel the need to threaten you. Right, yeah. Then you know Wolverine smoking in the shadows, kind of had a uh, the smoking man from X Files feel to it. Yes. <laughs> and then Cancer we get, man. Right. Yeah. Then we get a really cool panel of Spider-Man sideways on the building with like blue light, which is a, a thing that McFarlane does to great effect a lot. Uh, you see that a lot as he moves into Spawn as well, which. I'm sure you have noticed on all the pouches. Um, and one of the things that McFarlane does, and it doesn't work when the colorist doesn't pick up on it, but he always draws like the little halo arc around Spider-Man's forehead. Um, you know, just all the little those little lines, and it's yeah. supposed to be like a transition in the color, like you know the the front of his face is one lighting the top of his head and everything else is another lighting and that little curvy arc of lines all across his forehead marks the boundary if the colorist doesn't pick up on it then it's just this weird arc of lines but in the particular (laughs) panel you're talking about you do have red on one side and orange on the other and it works yeah yeah it looks really nice i mean Um, farling draws that all the time it does not always end up being colored correctly yeah yeah you're absolutely right and then uh, we see Wolverine in his old school outfit with almost, almost looks like metal shoulder pads in this version of the costume. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, some kind of '90s uh, armor shoulder pads. Maybe he stole those from Cable. Um, same red belt. Yeah, <laughs> same red belt. Not quite as thick. Still a little bit thinner. Um, might be a different red belt, but I think it's the same red belt. <laughs> that big old square buckle. And and uh, no cigar. We're back to little tiny cigarettes uh, that Wolverine smoking in this storyline. Um, maybe that's all I could find up north. Yeah, you know, I will say, um, and you can tell me if this plays better digitally. So it's not in the last two pages, but it's towards the back where we have um, opposing pages of big heads. So we have the big head of Wolverine with the cigarette and then kind of the panels to the left of him. And then you have the big head of Spider-Man with panels to the right. And there's an unfortunate 
printing order in the comic where it would have been really cool and maybe you have a better effect digitally. Like it would have been really cool for those pages to like face each other in the same like view. You know yeah, I, mean? I know exactly what you mean. So it wasn't printed that way. No, it was not. So you have the Wolverine page and then you turn the page and on the back there's an ad and then Spider Man. And so if they would have flip flopped and put the ad on the front of the page and put Wolverine on the back, you could have opened it and they would have looked at each other and it would have been a really cool visual. Um, it's almost definitely what McFarlane was going for. Um, unfortunately, you know, Comixology has the thing where you turn your iPad on its side and it, it, it automatically goes to a two page view. Oh, but yeah. What the, what those two pages are is hard coded into the comic. Um, you know, there's some readers where you can kind of, you know, play with that a little bit. But and it is hard coded the wrong way. So oh, you have mama. two pages <laughs> with Wolverine's head on the right, and then you swipe and you have Spider Man's head on the left and the second page to the right of that. Yeah. So it does not work. Uh too bad. It would have been really cool to I'll probably do something on my just take some screenshots and make my own. But um <laughs> Right. Yeah, but um, I like the idea that uh, you know, we get the panel where Spider-Man gives the thumbs up to Wolverine, and then they're they're off into action in a really nice, to be continued splash page that looks really good. Yeah, yeah, Spider-Man and Wolverine going to town on the end. It looks really good, and like I said, Wendigo, you know, is not the person behind all this. Wolverine points that out to Spider-Man. It's the first time that's made clear that all of the stuff with Wendigo so far has been misleading and misdirection, um, which it might make the first time reader. And I kind of feel like I might have felt this way, wonder about some of that, wonder about some of the storytelling. But like I said earlier, if you do go back and pay attention to the details, it does work out. All the double entendre is just that. It's double entendre. Right. Yep. All right. Well, you want to move into number 11? Spider-Man 11, Perceptions Part 4 of 5. While Wolverine operates on Wendigo, Spidey takes on the press and the law. So we're in day 10 of the incident. And, um, you know, the whole story about the officers getting attacked by the creature is making the rounds. Our credits go to story and pencils Todd McFarlane, inks, Rick Magyar and McFarlane, Rick Parker on letters, Greg Wright on color, Jim Salakrup editor, and Tom DeFalco editor-in-chief. Spider-Man decides to take the new information about Wendigo and bring it to the original reporter as Peter Parker. So he knocks on Anna's door, and she's happy to see him. Um, But whenever he tells her, and he can't cite a source, which is part of the problem. He can't say how he knows this. He just says, I have new information. The whole Bigfoot thing has been a sham. The creature that you hit didn't kill that boy, was just carrying the dead body. And Anna kind of reacts as harshly as one might expect from a professional who's putting, you know, her career on the line for a story that she's already got emotionally, you know, she might be compromise is too strong a word but definitely invested in conflicting way conflicted that's a good word yeah she's emotionally conflicted about the story and but she's decided to take a particular stance because that's what she needs to do someone comes in saying her stance is wrong and she digs in her heels 
which is what a lot of people might do. Anyways, so Wendigo has a bleeding belly. He's trying to take care of himself, but he passes out in the stream. Wolverine shows up and decides to do a little uh, adamantium surgery on the creature. <laughs> Spider-Man tries to go to the police, gives an officer in the uh, break room the folder containing all the information about Wendigo, and it is very clear that the officer is blowing him off and is not going to take his information seriously. But he does what he can. The folder does make it into the hands of the detective that we've been following, the somewhat shady detective, who's like, you know, someone get me Thorpe. Where'd this guy get this stuff? If it gets out, we're in trouble. Meanwhile, Wolverine removes the bullet from Wendigo's belly and hopes that Wendigo will be able to heal up on his own from there. Peter goes to Melvin with the information, and Melvin also puts him off. So no one is coming to Peter's side when Peter brings this new information forward. All the proper channels are closing themselves off to him. Um, The inspector calls uh, the guy Thorpe into his office. They sort of yell at each other a little bit, and he's like, we need this creature dead. And um, Thorpe has concluded that the killer might not be the monster. The detective is like, what? How'd you know? This is just a hunch amongst other things. Wendigo starts feeling better. Wolverine is there to make friends with him. They decide (laughs) to help each other. Wendigo trusts his instincts. They have a little claw shake, you know, to make friends. Spider-Man broods on a hilltop, on a rooftop like Batman. And then uh, even though he's all conflicted and has no idea what is right and what is wrong, doesn't have Mary Jane to help him. He decides to go after Wolverine. Wolverine, meanwhile, is digging up another dead child in the woods. And Wendigo is ferocious and angry that another child has died. And Wolverine, as he cradles the dead body, we next issue the conclusion. Mm. Yeah. So uh, going back to the cover real fast, I I really like it, except for it kind of looks like Wolverine has forks. <laughs> yeah, the claws are kind of shorthanded just a little bit, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. But Wendigo looks really nice, and... The, the kind of inset panel of Spider-Man with the webs coming off of it is a nice effect as well. So I think other than the, the claws, it's a, it's a pretty great cover. Yeah. Yeah, and, I like it. Honestly, every cover in this in this run is pretty eye-catching. Yeah, I agree. There's some solid uh, compositions going on. Yeah. And I thought that first page was just really wow. Um, it looks really cool visually. I really like the writing on it. Um you know, he talks about it finally happened. Someone else saw it. Um, you know, but will it matter? I understand their fear. You know, to face something eye to eye that you don't believe exists is disturbing. It blows all your previous assessments of life to smithereens. You know, if a creature like this can go undetected for so long, what else could exist? It's just a really kind of macabre, but, you know, kind of psychologically interesting way to start this chapter i really enjoyed it and i feel like the spider-man splash here complements the wolverine splash that started last issue wolverine's running through the woods and spider-man swinging through the rooftops they're both very uh, quintessential to their characters right yeah in their element so to speak um right i will say that 
you know, we, we get a different inker here, or, or at least part part of the inks are different. I, I think I can't really tell the last time. I could tell more of this one. There's parts of the first handful of pages that don't really look like McFarlane anymore. Um, particularly, like, when Peter's trying to tell uh, Anna about the the Wendigo, like, that Peter face uh, doesn't, really nothing looks like McFarlane about that to me. But, um, but by the time we get back to the Wendigo in the forest, it looks right again. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. And I, I don't know, you just, you really, you know, it's funny because they don't play into some of the Wendigo lore. And I think by kind of omitting or, or changing kind of and switching the idea that, that he's not eating people, you really feel bad for the Wendigo in this story. Um, the scene of him kind of clawing through the forest and falling into the river, like it's very sympathetic. And when Wolverine finds him, um, I don't know. It just, you really feel like this is just a wounded animal. It's being hunted unfairly. Um, just, you really, you really feel bad for this this character. This is based on a, a myth of cannibalism, <laughs> but 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 you really ring the sympathy bell. So it's, it's an interesting kind of take on the on the character and the mythos. Um, so was Wendigo in the comics also cannibalistic? I'm pretty sure, wasn't he? I guess it wouldn't be cannibalism because he's not a human, except he is a human, and it went in a monster's body, but. Um, I don't remember that being a part of the thing, but it, it definitely could have been. I thought Once, that's what started it. Like, there was a guy, I think the, yeah, because the comic Wendigo was the guy, he got trapped, right? And he had to eat part of his friend for survival, and that turned him into the Wendigo. Uh, okay, I've only read the Wolverine part of that story, where they're, like, uh, okay. fixing the guy trapped in the bot in the Wendigo body. They don't actually explain much about how it happened. Um no. The in fact that goes back to what I was about to say the idea that Wendigo is a human person that has been transformed into a creature oh, by magic and mysticism. <laughs> well, it actually is mentioned in one line in oh, passing that I noticed. Yeah, I noticed it this read through specifically because I'd never noticed it before and didn't even know that was a thing until later comics reading. Okay. So you it's which just, line it was? It it's it's somewhere in probably okay. issue three, but no uh, it, it's yeah, no somewhere in there. <laughs> so um, you have anything you want to talk about, kind of before we get to the uh, the adamantium surgery scene? Because I really like that. Um, not really, except that you know, feel bad for Peter because he really, you know, Wolverine's going to show a bunch next issue about how this, you know, that we we try to play it Spider Man's way didn't work out, and yeah, Peter's trying every proper avenue, and it's just no yeah. one's taking him seriously. There's too much corruption, too much um, apathy. Um, again, themes that feel uh, very modern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too much reliance from the press and the authorities on the current narrative as it's being told. Yeah. We don't yeah. want to change the narrative because then everybody looks like fools. Right. Yeah. So I really like the idea of Wolverine using his claw kind of as a surgical blade, but also 
the narration that goes with it, how he kind of says, you know, I don't get to use the claws for positive reasons like this very often. Uh, I don't really like the vegematic <laughs> description, but, but it says, you know, nice to know that they can do more than slice and dice. But he doesn't shy away from that either. He's like, you know, I have these claws for what they do. They're they're good for the, the violence and uh, the vengeance and the, you know, meeting out justice my way but you know also they can help save people and that's that's cool i'm glad i get to do this from time to time so i just i thought that was really cool not only a scene of like a cool use of the power but also you know a, a look we get a lot of really good looks into wolverine's character through mcfarlane's narration and for a character that as far as i know this is the only time he really writes him he, i think he nails him um and, and just it feels like Wolverine. It does. It feels very Wolverine. Of course, like I said, to me, this is the basis of my Wolverine concept. So. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love the uh, we get the the bird like nose again, but also the big Catholic uh, ate the canary grin after Wendigo starts waking up um, Wolverine's face. Um, it's very cartoony, but it's kind of like this whole scene when Wendigo wakes up and. Wolverine's trying to like befriend him and you know gain his trust. It's, it's very, for lack of a better word, kind of cute. Um, yeah, yeah, really endearing. Where did it go? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, then we go back to Spider-Man moping. He says he feels like that bat fella, which if you kind of put that with the scene early in the issue, um, where he's standing on the roof and I guess he's actually putting his coat back on. But you see, like the the spider logo underneath the coat, almost like a Superman type. It coat. does look like a short rip. You're right. <laughs> so he's he's nailed two DC characters in this issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I love. I think other people have done this before McFarlane, but I know McFarlane does it a lot. But the Spider Man hanging from just multiple webs is a look that I just really, really like a lot. Um, so always, always glad to see that. It makes you wonder, like, how he gets them oh. all there and gets <laughs> right. himself into right. them. And then he's like, "I'm just going to hang out for an hour, right? You know, if, yeah. if I've got to just like suspend somewhere. And, you know, rooftops are boring. Might as well just like hang from some webs." Yeah, yeah. No, it's not. It's not super realistic, but it's a very cool effect. <laughs> And the whole, then the nine panel sequence slowly pulling out from them unburying a body. We have a fly's compound eye. And then we pull out on the fly and realize the fly is next to a blade of grass and that ground where the grass is where Wolverine is digging. And we just, like, every shot is farther and farther out. It's a but nice also the, effect. Also, the color scheme is symmetrical as well, because at the top you have blues and grays, and at the bottom you have blues and grays. Yeah, it's interesting. It's nice. It's almost and the blue of the the eye of the fly, mm-hmm. and then the sky, as we see tiny silhouettes of, of Wolverine and Wendigo carrying the the child. You know, I will say one of the things because we. We've taken a turn, a story that's already really dark with 
with dead kids, and we're we're gonna find out that there's there's a little even more darkness to it in the next chapter. But one of the things that I really appreciate about both Wolverine and Wendigo here is throughout the story, and then especially at the end of this one and into the next chapter, the just complete dignity that that Wolverine gives the corpses. Um, I don't know, and even with kind of the the change in the story, going back and reading the first one with Wendigo digging up the body and carrying it towards the town. You know, he got hit by the car and started this whole thing with a misinterpretation. But you get the sense that even then, Wendigo was trying to, you know, he he smelled or found a body and was trying to kind of restore the dignity to it. Um, It's a really nice touch. And even in this kind of this horrible situation, our heroes are, or even our, our hero and our wild animal here are almost being more human than the, some of the other humans in the story. And it's a really nice touch. Um, then that last page just looks freaking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And in, in that, that dignity you're talking about is, is definitely encapsulated in the bottom right with Wolverine. And, but you also get the anger and the ferocity and the, the need for retribution through Wendigo's physicality. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty fantastic. It communicates a lot of emotion. It does. It does. And yeah, I def- I'll probably get into this a little more as we wrap up the story, but reading this story now is very complicated. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I just, I mean, there's a very... There's a very complex kind of balance between kind of my overarching pacifist worldview and then the need for justice and vengeance in these kind of fiction stories and kind of running the the gambit of those emotions through this story is just is it's kind of it's maybe complicated not the right word very complex um yeah um and I I think a tribute to McFarlane's writing is how deftly he handles the complexity of the story. But, um, yeah, anything else before we jump to the, the last chapter? No, I just I think it's, you know, one of the reasons we have stories like this is so that we can explore those thoughts and explore right. those thought processes without actually having to deal in a situation where we're not actively dealing with the cause of them. Right. We can think about how we feel about something without actually having to process the trauma of it, uh, which I think in one way helps prepare us for when we do have to deal right. with the trauma of stuff like this. Yeah. If, if we ever have, if we ever do. Right. But yeah. I'm ready for the end. All right. Spider-Man number 12 perceptions five of five. Oh, wait. <laughs> Whenever <laughs> you're ready, sir. <laughs> I got a little mixed up in my order here. All right. Um, this one is, yeah, like I said, Perceptions 5 of 5, the conclusion. Um, we just kind of get by McFarlane, Parker, and Wright. So I think McFarlane is back to kind of doing everything except for the colors. Um, and... The cover I really like. Um, we have Wolverine crouching through some trees, like fighting his way through trees. 
Uh, Spider-Man is swinging through the forest. Um, Wolverine's a little monster teethy, but other than that, I really like this cover a lot. Yeah. Um, I feel like I kind of sing the same song with each cover. Um, that the, the colors pop. The design works yeah. really well for me. Um, yeah. Wolverine's mouth was kind of doing the same thing on a previous cover, but it was smaller on the page. So <laughs> right. It didn't show up as much. Um, but yeah, this is... This is Spider-Man and Wolverine doing their thing, and they've been in really awesome poses for five covers now, and yeah. it's been great. Yeah, and the killer revealed. <clears throat> so uh, Wolverine leaves Spider-Man to babysit Wendigo while he goes into town in his Logan civvies to track the real all-too-human killer. He finds what he needs and then leaks some false Bigfoot sightings to set all the players in motion on one last hunt. He confronts the tracker Thorpe before rejoining Spidey and Wendy to share his plan. Spidey will remove as many of the hunters as he can, except the inspector and his party, and he's going to do that with mostly harmless webbing while Wolverine sneaks up on the inspector, terrifies him by cutting up his gun, and leads him to a tied-up Thorpe. Here he explains the what and the how uh, of the killer before popping his claws and seemingly eviscerating Thorpe. Then he turns to the inspector. If I'll do that just to make a point, what will I do to the real killer? You! As the inspector stammers into denial, Wendigo pops out of the woods for added effect, (laughs) and the inspector now blubbers a detailed confession before trying to run away. Uh, Wolverine got the whole confession on tape. It's much darker than just murder. Um... He gives the tape to Thorpe, who he only pretended to gut before attempting to pursue the inspector. He doesn't get far, though, as a trigger-happy hunter mistakenly shoots and kills the fleeing inspector as they were just shooting all the wild animals they could see. Um, Thorpe gives his evidence to the press. Wendigo goes about his oddly uncannibalistic business. Uh, Wolverine traps and uncovers more bodies to return to the parents. Sorry, I said traps. Tracks. Wolverine tracks and uncovers more bodies to return to the parents. And Spider-Man flies home, understandably depressed about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I think worked really well for the resolution in this is that they had been setting up as a background element the fact that hunters were just in the woods shooting indiscriminately. Right. And the uh, the animal body count was piling up, which didn't play into the plot at all until here. Right. But it but it was a but it was a constant background element that was just part of the environment of the story. Yep. And and then it uh, to me that's just really skilled writing. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you have this yeah, thing definitely. kind of playing in the back that you're gonna pull in later. You know, and it's fun too, or not fun, but it's it's interesting too because you could have up to this point just read that background story, it's just commentary on you know hunting, guns, you know animal rights, whatever you want to play into that. So it could have just been background commentary, but then to also use it as a significant plot point 
that really plays into the final resolution that just makes it work on multiple levels. And I think that's just really, really good writing. Um, yeah, I like I like that a lot. The um, what do you think of this first page? <laughs> I don't love it. It's uh, it's some crazy hair. It's uh, it's all over the place. I wouldn't mind the hair so much if the if Logan's face were actually his face, or at least the face has been in the story, right? Yeah, uh, his face is not this narrow, and maybe Todd had to do it that way to get the face and the hair all into that one set of proportions. Right. Right. And there are people that draw him like that. I mean, Sylvester draws a little bit leaner Wolverine, but McFarlane's had him pretty, pretty pretty squatty. Yeah. Pretty square is a good word. Um, So McFarlane really jumps into some mask play in this issue. And it's all great. (laughs) Which one are you thinking of? Well, so so we have where uh, the first one I'm thinking. Sorry. Well, Spider Man's eyes. Yes, like with the sheesh when Wendigo gets an awesome growl and Spider Man looks like worried. Um, then we have Wolverine pulling on his cowl. Um, it's very very stretchy. Um, and Spider Man again gets the kind of cartoon worried eyes. Um, we get the classic one, two, three snicked reason. And when it goes like almost into Peter's nostril through the mask, and we see just a really, really more for the point of this. Well, for the point of this point, sorry, that, that came out bad. But, um, <laughs> you know, more detail and a more hugging mask than McFarlane normally draws. But we see like all the facial features through the mask. Right, right. And then the page after that, almost a a Deadpool before Deadpool of of just seeing a big old grin through the mask, where uh, Spider Man is trying to kind of play off the fact that Wolverine's about to eat his or that Wendigo is about to eat his face. Um, just really, really interesting, kind of cartoony and humorous, um, but kind of helps offset just kind of how disturbing this last chapter really is. So I All like right. it. Yeah, lightening up the um, the tone with a little bit of uh, chuckling kind of helps since this is honestly mostly being read by, you know, early teens and preteens. Right. Um, yeah, I did like the mass play. I did notice the, uh, the nose thing, which is I think the first time I'd ever thought about the fact that really Spider-Man's mask should <laughs> right. poke out with his <laughs> nose. And then, like, do a straight plane down to his chin. The idea of it going into his lips is a little bit weird unless, like, Spider-Man's sitting there bored and, like, is playing with his mask and, like, poking right. it between his lips and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, definitely some good mask play. Yeah. And I love Logan's face whenever he goes cowboy in the middle of the story. Uh, yeah. Just puts on his hat. Right. Uh, um, I like Anna's anguish as she's trying to deal with the story in light of what Peter has told her and how she is now full of doubts. I really liked the alpha flight cameo. I did too. I liked it so much. Sasquatch is like, what? Why are they blaming me for this? <laughs> it's awesome. It kind of made me wish McFarlane had done more alpha flight stuff, but right. 
I don't even know if he did any Alpha Flight stuff. I, I don't know if he did or not. Um, he gets a little Wayne Gretzky plug in there, too. I don't know if you know, but Farley's a huge Wayne Gretzky fan. So he gets a little Stanley Cup action on that paper. Um, I also, uh, back to the the, the snickting part, uh, we do get where Wolverine endorses half-claw ratings. <laughs> so there you go. Um <laughs> Yeah, but man, yeah, the story, um, you know, we find out that there's definitely more than just murder. It goes into that the uh, inspector was, you know, doing other darker, more abusive things to the, to the boys. Um, they don't spend a lot of time with No, that. they don't, I, and I appreciate that, too. Um, they kind of let you know what happened, you can kind of definitely... You know, read into it, but they don't give gory details on that, which I appreciated. Um, but yeah, um, that the panel where he's threatening, he's got like his fist up to Thorpe's head, like he's about to pop the claws, is a really nice touch. The inspector is definitely like, "What's going on here?" Um, and then he kind of gets his just desserts and then you know everyone kind of goes about the rest of the story wolverine has a smoke <laughs> wendigo runs off um you know really if there's anything that kind of felt a little out of place was um i don't disagree with spider's man's sentiment and principle like it feels right to him as far as talking about you know these other darker heroes being too much and maybe not being heroic I'm not sure if this case is the best study for that because, um, you know, Wolverine's methods here are maybe not super heroic, but they kind of lead to the kind of indirect death that our quote-unquote refuse-to-kill-heroes encounter fairly often. Yeah. Because um, Wolverine doesn't actually kill him. I mean, he wanted to. He was probably going to. <laughs> but, I mean... And you can say that he definitely had some culpability in his death, you know, in the whole way he set everything up. But, I don't know, it just seems like if he was really going to rag on, you know, the Wolverines, Ghost Riders, and Punishers at the end of this story, I'm not sure if Wolverine really played this that bad or that overly violent in this particular story. No, you're right. It's It's... The emotional beat that Peter is in feels honest, but the way it's expressed and related to the villain, to the heroes, rather than to the circumstances of the crimes, right. feels feels out of place. Um, you know, nice job, Pete. You have dead boys, dead animals, and a dead child molester. Seems like we achieved a lot. Yeah, that's an understandable sentiment. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. We have to find ways to solve these things better. That seems fine too, yeah. But you know, and the the idea of wanting to get some sucker from Mary Jane and and you know helping her, getting her to help console him and find you know find his humanity again, all of that is good. But you're right, going back to Wolverine and saying that his methods are part of the problem, that 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 doesn't work. Also, because of the story, Peter tried the regular channels, 
and none of that worked. Right. And it's not exactly like Wolverine did anything untoward. He rigged a confession. He sort of entrapped a confession through some fake violence. And it's the kind of stuff that I think that, like, Peter himself <laughs> would do. Right. Sure, the guy getting shot at the end would probably not happen in the Spider-Man story. But, you know, getting one bad guy or alleged bad guy to trick another bad guy into confessing. And I think I think Spider-Man would do that. Yeah. Well, even earlier in this story, you know, having the thug hanging from the webs and threatening to let him fall. And then he falls into the dumpster. But I don't think the guy necessarily knew that. And I know we've had stories where Spider-Man has hung people by a web pretending he was going to really, really hurt them when he had, you know, a dumpster or water or something waiting below. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. But I agree, though. The rest of it, the, him struggling with the darkness of the story, him needing or wanting a better resolution, him wanting to go home and just kind of get away from it and get kind of grounded back in the comfort of his marriage. Like, that all did feel really, really real. So I think it's just a, a, a slight maybe nitpicky misstep in, a, in an otherwise very I think realistic and an emotional ending to the story mm-hmm. and I've been avoiding saying it this entire time but this honestly is my favorite of the McFarlane run in this title um, because his run and people might forget this his run in this title is very short he has um, 14 right he has one more two-parter with Morbius and Back yeah. in Black. And That's then it, right? well, he takes one issue off or two oh, issues off, maybe. he has that X-Force crossover. He does the X-Force crossover. I forgot crossover. about that. Okay, right. Okay. And that's it. So um, 15 issues, which is just a little over a year in the book for the title that was kind of created for him. And then he goes off and joins Image. Right. Yeah, there's that's a whole conversation for another day, but there's a certain amount of ickiness about the fact that Marvel was rolling out the red carpet for a whole stable of artists who then said, oh, thanks. Yeah, we want all these titles and then left and did their own company instead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, but it definitely changed the landscape of comics as. As yep. you have been exploring in detail. Um, but I think back to kind of our original thought, I think this, I agree with you. This is probably the best, or at least most fully written story of the bunch. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a great, it's definitely a better example of his writing. Um, very complex. It's dark and disturbing, but it's cathartic in a way that makes you kind of like Peter, feel uncomfortably satisfied about the end results um, and kind of wrestle with yourself, like, am I really happy with this? Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's, it's very, very expertly written. Um, the art, with with a couple of small quibbles, is exceptional throughout. Um, it, it's really good. You know, and... <clears throat> I'm a pacifist. I don't typically get drawn into Wolverine as a cheerleader of when he has to kill. 
Um, uh, maybe right. weird to say on a Wolverine podcast, but um, you know, to me, Wolverine's about the struggle with the honor and nature and kind of that internal battle all the time. Uh, the reluctance to kill, but the fictional willingness to do it to protect others. But the story really, in a fictional way, really kind of makes you ask the tough questions like, you know, if Wolverine did exist in the real world and there were really monsters who destroyed our monsters, this is an appropriate situation <laughs> where you would want to see Wolverine exact his vengeance. You know, when you, when you start talking about people who, you know, molest, abuse and murder children like that, those are the most monstrous aspects of our humanity. And if you, if there was ever a case where you, as a reader in a fictional situation would want the catharsis of seeing them get their just results. That's definitely one of them. It's definitely at the top of the list. Um, right. It's just horrible, unspeakable. And I don't know. So did you find yourself obviously, you know, being older, wiser, having a much larger context of comics and comic storytelling in general, that's all going to impact the way you read this. Now, did you have any... We don't have to go into in, into this into great detail, but I just wanted to kind of mention it. For me, and I don't know if you felt the same, I read this a lot differently being a father. Um, the impact of what happened to the children hit me a lot different than it did when I was 13, and or even I think that it did. Cause I read this again several years ago in college. I I busted this out in my long box and read it. Um, and even you know being more mature and more worldly at that point, there's still a different feel and a different kind of pit in my stomach. I got reading this as a dad. I don't know if you had any similar experience or if you just kind of read it as a story. Um, well, certainly it's understandable. I didn't personally have a lot of those thoughts when I was reading it this time, yeah. but I can see how you would. Um, and it's the sort of thing that I might have on another on another instance. Yeah. I was kind of absorbed in the uh, details of the mystery and how it was, um, you know, slowly unfolded and how right. he was kind of, you know, some of the stuff I was saying earlier about, you know, giving us misdirection that yeah. works. Well, even in that um, last issue, there's like several misdirects again. <laughs> right, right. Honestly, yeah, like yeah, up until up until Thorpe turns out to be okay, you really think he's in on it. That right. either they're partners or that something. Um, but yeah, the uh, the story I think is probably the most technically proficient story. Uh, McFarlane's Spider-Man yes. run, you know, yeah. it, 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 as far as the, the, the craft of telling a comic book story and a mystery story, a murder mystery story and a team up story. Um, I feel like, you know, from a technical standpoint, this is a quality piece of writing and art. Yeah. Um, I, I think it, it's even a little better than some of his early Spawn stories. I think he, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think he he comes out of the Spawn firing on all cylinders with the art and the concept, but it takes him a little bit to find his kind of universe 
building in a way that's really cohesive. Um, but and and as as we will plug more at the end. But if you want to hear John talk a lot about Spawn, um, all the pouches is a great place to do that. Um, well, in those first couple of years on the book, a third of it was other people writing right, and contributing right, ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times other people's writing did outshine his own yeah. stories. And then he is able to use those concepts to the betterment of his comic. Um, but, you know, this he's able to work with uh, characters that are already to fully develop. They have decades of history behind them. He's not ground upping a comic book. He's able to focus on the craft of the storytelling and whether he was actively doing that or not. I think that this comes out better than torment, better than um, the hobgoblin one, whose name uh, masks, I think, think and, and better than the, uh, the, the sewer city or sin city, whatever it's called with the Morbius one. Um, Those I do like, the hobgoblin story, although it is a bit slimmer and thinner as far as, you know, just subject matter to sink your teeth into. But I do remember the idea of hobgoblin taking that boy under his wing right. and like mutilating him to make him think that he was like him. And little conservative Christian me just spent a <laughs> lot of time thinking about the, the whys and wherefores and ramifications of all that. Right. Um, but yeah, if he had ended the series here, it would have been on a really high note. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And, um, you know, to me, it, it kind of maybe seems like it should be obvious when they're the same person, but it's not always obvious. But the the perfect gelling in Farley's storytelling between the writing and the art and the way it all comes together, I think, is just this story to me is it's a total package. Um, I mean, it's comic book, it's it's comic booking at at you know in its its upper upper game. I I think it's really really good. I think it holds up really well. I think you know commentary on media manipulating stories, uh, people buying into. Hysteria and uh, um, uh, sh- shoot, uh, conspiracy theories, and you know, then kind of just the idea that sometimes we as people are more more monstrous and more animalistic than than the animals. And there's there's a lot of themes that people can maybe say, oh, that's he's trying too hard, it's pretentious, but I, th- I think they play really well. I think they come off. You know, I guess a perfect example. So there's there's another story where Wolverine goes to the Savage Land and Punisher War Journal, and there's some elements that like conservat conserve conservatory. I don't want to say conservatism, um, conserving nature, whatever the noun for that Conserv- is. Conservation. Conservation. Yes, thank you, John. Um, but it comes off a little bit preachy at times, and I never in this story felt preached to. Now, I can see maybe someone could, but to me, it just felt like very organic parts of the story. Um, you know, the the two sides not understanding each other, like between the environmentalists and the hunters and and no one kind of giving any, any compromise there. Like, that felt very much like modern-day 
politics and issues that there's you know the, the lack of people to sometimes see any gray area um there's just a lot of things felt really relevant and organic to me i just i thought oh i just i really enjoyed reading it again and was glad that i did yeah i feel that um you know there wasn't a whole lot of active condemnation of hunting as a concept in this right. there was the one thing with the hunter where wolverine first shows up and there's the hysteria involved with hunting through the back of the comic, but hunting. Oh my cat's tangled. Oh my god. <laughs> Hold on one second. Kitty got yeah. tangled up like wires. Uh oh. Okay. Um, sorry about that. No problem. I have a kitten who decided to jump right through my wires. <laughs> so, so you don't feel that like you're being preached to that hunting is bad. Um, rather the condemnation of the hunter at the beginning of the story is in the context of, okay, kids in the forest are dying and we're hunting for what's trying to find them or what's trying to hurt them. And maybe random hunting of animals at this time is not the way to go about doing that. Right. Um, so it, it's given a context, not just made a blanket statement. Now I personally have my opinions about hunting, right. but I don't feel like this comic is preaching a position on that. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the, what what we do get instead is, you know, monsters are not always monsters and good people are not always good people because they're actually the monsters. Right. Yep. Very, very well handled. Very well told. So, um, all right. Well, what do you want to, I guess, I guess I should have asked you as we went, but I just, I just made the assumption we would grade this all at the end. Yeah. Story. Um. So where'd you land on on this one? Okay, so I'm going to grade this three different ways. Okay. Um, As a Spider-Man story, this is a four to a five. Um, They do some good stuff with Spider-Man. He's kind of, he's almost a secondary character in his own book. But when he's on page, he's doing good stuff. So, you know, four to a five on that. As a Wolverine story, I think it's uh, five to a six because Wolverine actually has a lot of really good stuff. There's a lot of really good artwork with Wolverine. Um, but as just a comic book reading experience, this is a six for me. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm right there. Uh, a, a soft six, hard five. Um, I think after talking about it, like in, in kind of in depth and in detail, um, for almost two hours here, I think I've definitely talked myself into that six range. Um, so six out of six claws for me. Um, great writing, fantastic art. Um, you know, as we alluded to earlier, the characters feel like the characters, and Wolverine feels and looks and moves like McFarlane gets Wolverine, which is is pretty cool because it had very limited time to ever do much with him. So to kind of have really this one story and to really show just kind of a fundamental just being in touch with the character I thought was really impressive because this Wolverine felt as fleshed out and as alive as his Spider-Man who he was super familiar with. Right. And in the physicality of both characters, as different as they are, are very well expressed in this comic. Yeah. Yep. It's a great kind of odd couple book in a way, but um, and like you said, um, it is kind of 
a Wolverine comic with Spider-Man's name on the front, but um, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> I mean, I can't complain about that on a Wolverine podcast. So, um, <laughs> well, like I said, I think earlier, this is this is a team-up story. It's it's this is this is Marvel team-up at its finest, you know. Yeah. And a lot of the a lot of times, Marvel team-up issues, Spider-Man would be there to help the story happen, but the team-up guest was the the spotlight character, and that was fine. You right. know, so you're going to get another team up next time. And this was kind of in that vein. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. I didn't make that connection, but that totally makes sense. So awesome. Well, Mr. Wilson, as always, thank you for coming on. And why don't you um, give all the deets on all the places people can find you? About all the pouches. There you um, go. So I do other podcasts. Um, or I should say I do podcasts because I, this is not actually my podcast. Um, in addition to happily frequently coming on to this show, I have three of my own shows. Uh, Make Hours Marvel is available every Friday at makehoursmarvel.com talking about Silver Age Marvel comics. We are getting into annual season in 1965. We uh, This coming Friday as we're recording this, we're going to be talking about the first couple of annuals from 1965. Nice. Um, uh we have just recently said goodbye to the Torch and the Giant Man strips, and we're welcoming S.H.I.E.L.D. and Namor into the lineup. Um, also, every Thursday, I have returned to Cybertron, a Transformers UK podcast, where I'm talking about the uh, Transformers comics that were published in the Marvel UK line, and also the comic, uh, sorry, the cartoon episodes that were aired. So as we're recording... We are deep in the heart of season one of the Transformers cartoon series. And we wrap that up. We have a nice run of comic stories that we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks. Then um, every month at the beginning of the month, I release several episodes for All the Pouches and Image Comics podcast. A year or two back, I decided to take the plunge on Image Comics and start reading through it from Youngblood number one, podcasting as I go. So Youngblood, Spawn, Savage, Dragon, Cyberforce, The Max, um, and Supreme, and all the stuff that you associate with early image. I've been going through all of that. Um, I'm currently working on the episodes for March of 1994, which uh, is in the middle of the, um, what do they call it? The Extreme Prejudice Crossover where all the extreme titles got together and mashed the action figures together against the bad guy. <laughs> so um, that's been fun. Um, so you should go check that out. They're all on Twitter, at MakeOursMarvel, at TFUK Podcast, at All the Pouches, and they're also on every every podcatcher that you use. So please come listen. And I'm also on Twitter at John Reads Comics. There's no H in John. And yeah, that's me. Yeah. And also... Uh, a, a plug for some old podcasting. Um, you know, I've been uh, doing my 70s reading project uh, since I finished my 60s one for Marvel. And as I've been doing that, as I've been stumbling across uh, Adam Warlock appearances, I've been going and re-listening to old episodes of uh, Al Sedano's podcast, uh, Resurrections, about Adam Warlock and Thanos. And I just read the ones where you came on for the first, or read, just listened to the ones where you came on for the first time, and those are really good episodes. So if you want to listen to some old John Wilson and our good friend Al, uh, you can check that out as well. 
Yeah, I, I'm kind of have a similar role to that show that I have to this. I'm a, a frequent guest and um, always happy to go and talk Adam Warlock and uh, Wolverine. So thanks for having me on again, Jason. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming. And, of course, for the podcast to go, Snick, you can like the Facebook page. Twitter is at SnickCast. Uh, Facebook shares and retweets are always appreciated. Um, I guess that's about it. Um Oh boy, I just I was just looking ahead. Um, so next next up, we'll get back with uh, the Scalabros on current books. Our next flashback will have more um, evil pedophile. <laughs> so that's oh no, yeah the uh, the bloody choices uh, graphic novel deals with uh, some similar subject matter. Um, so hopefully, I'll kind of get that out of the way and not have to get back to that for a while. <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, that's what's coming up next on the podcast. So uh, that's going to do it. Uh, thanks for listening, and until next time, hugs and snicks, everybody. Bye bye. Bye. And snacked. <laughs>